0: What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel
1: quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast.
0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm sitting here with my very dear friend Brianne Hovey who, uh, yoga instructor, my personal yoga instructor, sometimes it's been too long for that, uh, cycling companion, friend, um, one of the people I enjoy making laugh most in the world. (laughs) And, uh, I think this is going to be a cool conversation. We're going to explore, I think something, um, new for this podcast, um, something philosophical. So with that. Hi, Brian.
1: Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so I guess jump right into it. I mean, we were talking the other day uh, when I delivered your Bandito Cross Trophy, uh, Spirit of Bandito Award, um, about some of the challenges that you and I have overcome. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was sort of what that not life and death perspective has done, but what going through experiences that are very intense, very emotional, painful and personal. I think it's kind of done to our perspective on what I would maybe call now like normal day-to-day life. Is that about kind of what we were talking about?
1: That is what we were talking about. A hundred percent. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, Did you want to talk about your personal experience and what you've been through?
1: Sure. I'm not sure how far back to go. Um, I'd say one of my first pivotal experiences that shifted my uh, perspective on life was losing a really close friend of mine to a car accident when I was 17 and actually, the anniversary of her death is coming up December 28th. It'll mm. be 21 years. Where was that? Um, they were coming back from Utah for from Christmas, visiting family, and just hit some ice and, and rolled the van, and she was laying across the back seat sleeping. And I had lost grandparents before that, but... Nobody, she was my running partner. Mm. She went to a different high school than I did. And um, so returning back to school after she passed away and, you know, only a handful of my friends that went to my high school had met her. I was experiencing this level of grief that most of my classmates were completely unaware of. And it was interesting because I was open to talking about it. Um, for the most part, and I realized pretty quickly that there were people that I could share that with and people that it didn't feel as good to share that with. Um, the Was next... there a
0: particular characteristic that you noticed? or?
1: Um, I think that people who have been through that kind of loss before, they kind of get how to be supportive, and some people, it's overwhelming to them. They don't know what to say or what to do, and then it just kind of creates this awkward uh, silence between two people, in a way. The next year, um, during cross-country season, I would you know, run into her teammates or even be running in the 5K, going, oh, did you know um, Lindsay and it was that was pretty cool because people who knew her they would open up and share different experiences that they had had with her and i felt like oh like i can still get to know this person she passed away i'm hearing something i'd never heard about her before and then i found that it was worth it to have those conversations because if it was somebody that knew her well we got to relate. We got to connect. We maybe became friends. We maybe just shared our stories and connected and went our separate ways. And the people that didn't know her but knew who she was, they'd kind of just go, oh, that was so sad. And the conversation would be over. And it was kind of that similar dynamic that I was talking about with, you know, the people that are able to be supportive or not. But it was no loss to just say, oh, yeah, that yeah, that was sad. That's that an amazing sad.
0: concept that you... And I've never thought about this this way until you said this, was that you can still get to know that person more. They're not on the earth. You're not ever going to see them or talk to them again. But that relationship can still grow. And that's... I've never ever heard that described. And that's really cool.
1: Yeah, there's, and that's been an interesting thing. I mean, really, she helped me shape how I grieve. And um, what my needs are, and how I think about grief, too. Because a lot of people would tell me, oh, it gets better. It gets better with time. And
0: how do you know? (laughs) right well
1: uh, for some people that might be how they describe it and for me I would never tell somebody that it gets better I would say that it changes and there's there's this period of time where it just feels so intense and raw and then there's a period where it that rawness fades away and so maybe that's what people talk about when they say it gets better is it Gets less raw, but often you still miss that person. They still come into your mind. You, if you're really close with somebody, when for, I'll speak for myself, the people in my life um, who are who I've lost, who are closest to me, have to consider what I got out of that relationship and how can I. who do I go to now? Like for an example, we haven't talked about my dad yet, but, um, after he passed away, there's, there's things that he was just so his perspective, I found to be really unique. And it resonated so powerfully with me that after he passed away, um, the example would be, I was looking for a job and I had my resume and my cover letter and I called my brother um, to see if he would look it over for me. And he did. And what was so interesting is that I I thought, okay, if I give my cover letter and my resume to my brother, um, our mutual friend Martine, my best friend from college, between the th- what the three of them say, I know I'll come away with what my dad would have told me. <laughs> <laughs> And when my brother looked at my resume and my cover letter and we had a conversation, he told me what he thought I could improve or what was good or what was weak about it. He said, well, don't just take my word for it. Like call Martine, call another friend, get a couple of perspectives. And I said, yeah, it's funny you say that because that's exactly (laughs) what I was planning on doing.
0: (laughs) Done Um, and done.
1: The other thing that has been interesting about losing my friend Lindsay is, um, like I said, it's been almost 21 years and I've kept in touch with her parents and her sister throughout these years and not, not necessarily, we don't talk throughout the year. Usually we connect on her birthday and on the anniversary of her passing. And last year I had this moment where I thought it's been twenty years. Do they appreciate hearing for me, hearing from me, or is there a time when I stop initiating that communication? And <clears throat> I sat down for my morning meditation. I, I started meditating every day. Um, probably two years ago now. I sat down for my. Morning meditation, and that was sort of this thought that I had woken up with. Like, what do I do? And um, I think I set the timer for about 15 minutes, and I went, like, two minutes longer. And I use Insight Timer to... um, time my meditation and when
0: is it a guided meditation or a silent meditation This
1: was just a silent meditation okay. I didn't do a guided meditation that day um but I ended up meditating for 17 minutes I think that's how it went and um after the meditation on insight timer you can see who else meditated with you, and you can thank them for meditating. And I started thanking people for meditating with me, and there may have been a bug in the app that day. I'm not sure. I I think it needed to be updated, but every single person I clicked on, it said they had been meditating for 17 minutes. Hmm. And she had been 17 years old when she passed away, and it was 20 years ago, and I thought... There's my sign, <laughs> so I messaged her mom and her sister and and I got a message back from her mom immediately that you have no idea what it means to us that you've kept in touch all of these years
0: I, I believe there's no such thing as coincidences like that. like those are all the interconnection between friends and family and the universe and. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Hey, I heard a song. I thought of you or I drove past this place and oh, we went mountain biking there. It's I, I firmly believe there's some sort of interconnected collective consciousness. So yeah. I, I would I would have reacted in the exact same way that you have with that number. Seeing that like that. You want to call it a sign. You want to call it whatever. Like the the fact would not have been lost on me.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, it's crazy how many things like that happen if you're paying attention. Yesterday, I called one of my best friends down in Tucson and she answered the phone. She says, I literally just finished making your Christmas present and held it up for my husband to see. And I just said, look what I just finished for Brianne. And then you <laughs> called me. <laughs> <laughs> the energy was out there for <clears throat> sure.
0: That's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's so cool. Uh, When I was in eighth grade, there was a, uh, not a close friend of mine, but uh, his name was Chris Scully. And he was, he and his uncle were killed in a car crash the night before the end of eighth grade. So that was, I think, my first experience as a young adult with, the concept of death and you know losing somebody because you, know, you think you're bulletproof at that point. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was when I first was exposed to that. That light is red, solid red, right? It is solid okay. red. <laughs> Good. Should it be? Yes. <clears throat> yeah. I okay. just, just, I have a checklist that, sorry, I didn't go through. So, but yes. Um, anyway, sorry about that. Um, no worries. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I, I had lost my mom when I was uh, 20. So she had passed away right before I graduated college. And I, er, all ever since I've known you, your dad's been gone. But how mm-hmm. long ago was it?
1: It was six and a half years ago.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, he actually, um, he passed away on June 28th. Which, in a way, I mean, it, it all felt significant. It was exactly one month after his 63rd birthday. And six months after the anniversary of Lindsay's death. And, like, he was such a, s- a solid friend for me when my friend passed away. We would take Your dad these... Was. Yeah. Um he Yeah. He knew that there was nothing that he could do for me. That there was... Nothing he could say that was going to ease the pain or take it away from me. Um, But we would just go take these walks at night. You know, it's the middle of winter and we would, after dinner, after I was done with my homework, go take a long walk around the neighborhood, look at the stars. And he just offered me that space to be and to open up to him and tell him about what my experience was and he had also lost a friend um, when he was in middle school I think that he was 13 and his friend is buried in the same cemetery that my friend is buried and when we went to I went to I took him with me to Lindsay's grave at some point and we went into the office and found out where his friend was and he had never been to his friend's hmm. grave and we went and And checked that out. So it was something that uh, brought us a lot closer. Um, But he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he first... um, He had it the first time in 2006. And then it came back five years later in 2011. And he had a really... I don't even know what word to describe a very, very challenging nine months, the last nine months of his life. And, um, what's interesting is that in 2006, you know, he went through six rounds of chemo and I think some radiation and he, it made him feel like shit, you know? And he told me, I don't ever want to go through that again.
0: It was that bad?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and he <clears throat> kept himself in immaculate shape. He was at the gym almost every morning when the doors opened. He took care of himself. He ate well, had a glass of wine with dinner, slept well. Well, I don't know. He might have argued that he wasn't sleeping that well, but (laughs) he went to bed early. (laughs) But um, yeah, it came back and I thought, oh, no, he said he didn't want to go through that again. And man, what he went through with the recurrence was maybe 100 times worse than what he went through the first time.
0: Did he choose the chemo again, or well,
1: the there was a tumor that uh, developed in his brain, and uh, so the neuro oncologist he decided to administer this high dose methotrexate to deal with the tumor in the brain, and he warned us that he had a short fuse for sending his patients to the ICU, and that there would be you know some good monitoring of his. Uh, What's the word? Vitals. It's like vitals. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Dr. Venison here. Well, uh, life
1: and death <laughs> vitals of his vital signs, um, to make sure that everything went smoothly. Well, uh, the way it was explained to me was that the methotrexate broke up the tumor so effectively and so quickly that it caused like this temporary injury. And, um, he, really had a hard time breathing that night. Mm. And I was in the room with him. The door to his room at Swedish Hospital didn't close all the way, so my mom hadn't been sleeping well. I'd driven up. I was living in Telluride at the time. I'd driven up, and I told my mom, go home, go to bed, I'll I'll stay. I called her back to the hospital. The resident was from his primary care, and she... um She looked at his vitals, and his vitals weren't alarming at all because, again, he was in really good shape. So he had a low resting heart rate, low blood pressure. So for him, if those are elevated, they might match, like, an average person or maybe a little bit higher than average. But she wasn't too concerned and gave him some Ativan. Um, And my mom and I kept demanding for somebody else to come to call the intensivist. And the doctor came up from the ICU and he didn't look at any of his vitals. He looked at my dad and saw he was in distress, couldn't breathe, listened to his heart and said, get this man a bed in the ICU now. And he was intubated and in a coma for the next three weeks.
0: And did he come out of the coma? He came out of the coma
1: mm-hmm. um, and... It took a long time to get, uh, you know, enough rehab and strength back to um, to be able to come home. He did, I think he came home, it was either Christmas Eve or the day before Christmas Eve. And uh, <laughs> he hadn't been home for like two months, and they were passing by Greenwood Athletic Club on the way home. And he said to my mom, hey, can we stop at the gym? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and she's like, oh. Your dad is hardcore, yeah. man. <laughs> he loved that place. I mean, their, their tagline is the best part of your day, and they live it. That's how the staff operates. That's how the gym operates. Every decision kind of goes into how can we make your day great. And this awareness that people are coming here to be healthy and to experience some joy in their lives. And so how can we how can we create this environment where people feel like I'm part of a community? I'm happy to be here. I'm doing something for myself. So my mom said, let's go home and get unpacked and I'll take you over there a little (laughs) later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but they did go and, you know, he could hardly walk, but they they would go over there while he was out of the hospital and somebody would help him up on a spin bike. Somebody would get on the other side, my mom would be on one side, get him on a spin bike. He'd ride the spin bike for a little bit or, you know, walk really slowly on the treadmill. And they have these really great family walker rooms there now too. So, you know, I think the intention is for... Parents who come with their opposite gender children, they can not have to let them loose in the men or women's locker room. They can all get ready together, but it works out so well for somebody who's coming back from an injury or an illness or is getting old and needs the help of a family member. So yeah, that was a, that was a really good, good thing for him to be able to take advantage of when he was able to.
0: (laughs) I could just see your mom shaking her head.
1: We're going home. Yeah. (laughs) So
0: do you think that mindset helped him with his remission the first time?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, he was a goal oriented guy and I think Keep maintaining his fitness level was something that just brought him a lot of joy and and made him feel really good and healthy as part of his routine he He had a lot of really great routines <laughs> <laughs>
0: like what but laughing, I think what? <laughs> i'm just I'm just
1: thinking like you know, <clears throat> go work out in the morning, go to work, work all day, come home enjoy some hardball. Cook dinner, (laughs) have a glass of wine, go to bed before nine (laughs) o'clock.
0: That's great.
1: But he knew how to relax, too.
0: And so he came home. And then how long was it then before? The The next time
1: he was hospitalized. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember exactly um, the details from December to June, but he was trying to work his way up to a stem cell transplant. Mm. So with lymphoma patients, you are your own stem cell donor. You don't receive stem cells from another person. And so he, his goal was to, he had to get cancer free in order to then... What they would do is remove his stem cells, throw them through this spinner machine, as I understand, and then reintroduce the stem cells into his body. So around the summer solstice, actually, I think it might have been my parents' anniversary is June 19th. So right around that time, he went into um, PSL for his stem cell transplant, and uh, they, they started um, harvesting his stem cells, and he had an episode. He passed out, and they tested the stem cells, and they tested positive for the lymphoma. So oh. they said um, the stem cell transplant wasn't an option, and it was time to bring him home for hospice care. And on that same day that we received that message from the doctors, his cousin had mailed him a thousand origami cranes and they showed up in this big long box and, uh, all different colors of origami cranes with this beautiful letter. She had, um, survived breast cancer and she's an artist. She had lived in Hawaii for many years and her, she had, Moved back to the mainland for her um, treatment for breast cancer, and her Japanese Hawaiian friends had folded her the thousand origami cranes. So before this, I'm not sure how much exposure my family had had to origami cranes, but here they came on our doorstep, and the Japanese folklore says that somebody who folds one thousand origami cranes is granted a wish, and uh, it was World War II, it was after the uh, bombing of Hiroshima that made the story really famous. There was a little girl who developed leukemia, Sadaku Sasaki, I believe is her name. I might not be pronouncing that quite right, but she started folding a 1,000 th- origami cranes after developing leukemia to try and grant her wish to live, and she didn't. She passed away, but... Um, if you ever go to Hiroshima, every day, there are groups of Japanese school children coming to the peace bell, delivering their thousand origami cranes. So the other saying that is commonly used with the cranes is, I will write peace on your wings and you will fly. And the full, full expression says, you will fly all over the world. So we thought, okay, we don't really have a choice but we can write peace on his wings and let him fly. So we brought him home for hospice, set him up in our dining room, and um, had this really cool just parade of friends and family come through the house for like two full days. We had some hilarious um, uh, (laughs) confessions made that week by different people. (coughs)
0: <coughs> About hijinks with your dad.
1: It was pretty amazing. Uh, our neighbors who live, we share a corner of the fence. They, they came in and they're this really sweet, innocent, seemingly Mormon <laughs> couple. And uh, as soon as they sit down opposite to his bed, they said, we've come for confession we're like, what? <laughs> this is gonna be good. You know, my dad's sitting up. I don't know if he was sitting up, but he was alert. And uh he's like, okay. So <laughs> years ago, um we had this yard prank happen. I think I was I think I was in college. I think I was probably 19, 20 years old. My parents always took immaculate care of their yard. That's one of his routines too, was like he, he wanted every blade of grass to be green and all of the grass to be filled in, no weeds. Everything was always really immaculate. And uh so anyway, one day we look out outside and there's a pair of pink flamingos <laughs> in the yard. <laughs> And you know that would have driven them crazy. Only they were actually a pretty classy pair of pink flamingos. They were like the expensive pink really? flamingos, okay. yeah. And so they'd get pulled out for him to mow the lawn, and then they'd be put right back in. They actually <laughs> liked them. <laughs> <laughs> and we had no idea where these came from. They just. I think we had our them. suspicions, but never did we suspect. Kathy and Russ ever and uh, at some point the flamingos were stolen and uh, my parents were actually kind of bummed about that which was a surprise and my grandmother replaced them with the really cheap pink flamingos and those never lasted but she thought it was hilarious because you know she knew she got the gift she got the the gag so first, they say, we are the flamingo people. We're like, what? (laughs) So we have this whole reaction to their admission of being the flamingo people. And then Kathy says, and when I used to hear the lawnmower fire up, I'd quick think of an errand I needed to run and get in my car and drive around your side of the neighborhood so I could see Dave we're, we, mowing the lawn without a shirt on.
0: <laughs> awesome. So
1: we got to hear stories like that, which were really cool. And it just, it felt really special. You know, we never, we don't get to choose how we go or what the timing is or where we'll be. But that felt really cool to just... He was able to enjoy getting to see and and talk to the people that he spent so many years of his life with in that last week. And he seemed really, um, I wouldn't even say he seemed resigned to what was going to happen. I'd say he seemed calm about it, though. Well, you know, like he didn't have a choice either. but, right. you know, make the most out of it. So uh, we, we invited a lot of our family members in, to um, host other family members at their homes and start folding cranes because the more that we read about them, the more they seemed like a good representation of my parents' relationship. Cranes uh, mate for life. The birds do. And my parents met when they were 15 and 16 years old. No kidding. They high school sweethearts. Wow. And uh, they're, they're a strong bird, so they are representation of strength and peace. And that just really resonated with who my dad was. He was a strong man. He was calm. He had a great deal of integrity. He was who he said he was. He showed up how he said he would show up. So at the when we had the memorial service, we probably had at least a thousand origami cranes folded, I'm not sure. And we had written things on the wings that represented who he was. And so everybody got to take a crane home with them.
0: I still have the two you gave me. Yeah. They're on my desk,
1: you came to a yoga class on that anniversary. Yep, <clears throat> yep,
0: yeah, they're right on my lamp. So I see it when a, I have a big calendar and I mark off a day, this big, like two foot by four foot calendar, whatever it is, and I mark every day off. Mm-hmm. And uh, those cranes are right there. That's cool. Yeah, I, my mom went super fast. Um, it was She had what <clears throat> we thought was sciatica, just like some back pain. Yeah, And then that just had turned into, I think my dad might know the specifics, but by the time that we had discovered it, it had metastasized pretty much everywhere. And so it was basically, I think, six or seven weeks from the time that we knew she had cancer until... She had passed away uh, Memorial Day of, I think it was 1990. So it was really fast. We didn't even get our heads around the fact that it was cancer and all that, and then Mm -hmm. it was over. Wow. Yeah. And I just remembered this memory is that I had one regret because I went, it's like after school or after work or something, and she really wanted us to continue just normal day-to-day stuff. And I went to the hospital in Pueblo and the entrance that I'd always gone in to go up and see her in her room was locked and I couldn't figure out a way to get in there. And I just kind of, I'm forgetting now what it was, but there was something I just wanted to share. Like maybe I had like a meal or something or something that I wanted to do, just the two of us. And that was always just that I couldn't quite figure out how to get inside the hospital and see her then. And and I'm sure there was an emergency entrance or I could have Mm -hmm. talked to somebody about visiting hours or something, but that was something that I was always sad that I wasn't able to do was to get in and see her at that point Mm -hmm. in that evening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got a cool story about how you and I met. So talking about, well, initials and letters as opposed to numbers. But, mm-hmm. um, was it four years ago, five?
1: So it's 2018. I think we met three years ago.
0: So at the time I was selling um, a brand of bikes called BH Bikes, and you were working across the street in a different building <clears throat> at I-25 and Broadway, mm-hmm. and there was a flyer on our bulletin board for your yoga class at your building. And then as the weather turned nicer, uh, we started talking about bikes and things like that. And I remember our first group ride around Wash Park, I came over and I see this bike and it's very distinctive. It's a, It was a BH bike. Your initials are BH. Mm-hmm. And the, the size and the model of this bike was so distinctive. I just remember saying, where did you get that?
1: And I said, <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I knew you sold BH bikes already, but it didn't occur to me that you sold them all over the state. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, "Yeah, I got this at a at my friend Travis's bike shop down in Telluride, Box Canyon uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bicycles." And you said, "I remember when you bought that bike." <laughs> <laughs> yep.
0: Yep. He called me. He said he needed a. Uh... Is it an extra small or a small?
1: I think it's a small. Yeah. Crystal.
0: Crystal. And tracked one down, and I distinctly remember that. He was like, yeah, it's a good friend of mine, great rider. She wants this bike. And, yeah, so I sold that to you you (laughs) years before we even met. So that's just.
1: Speaking of the universe.
0: Yes. (laughs) So that's, that's really cool. So yeah, I'd walked
1: into the bike shop not long after Travis opened that shop. And I said, Travis, tell me about this bike in the window. And he said, well, it has your name on it. And I was (laughs) like, I noticed that. And I think I'm due for a new road bike. So
0: I keep forgetting to bring these over to you. I've got some die cut um, stickers that um, I have several. There's actually one that's like four or five inches across and they have one that's like two feet across. So if you want to put that on your hood, you're welcome to. I'll bring that over to you okay. next time. Thank so you. we'll all know it's your car. Okay. <clears throat> um, <laughs> um and and thank you for sharing that story. And I wanted to say that I asked you to talk about this stuff because um you're very important, very special to me, but I had a sense that you were strong enough to do so. And I just wanted to tell you that.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's these stories that I think make people feel most vulnerable. And sometimes there is a weakness associated with vulnerability, but often it's, it's the opposite. It is the strength and it, just means that we're sharing something that matters very much, mm-hmm. and you know, I think what you asked me about originally was to to get into kind of the how th- how these experiences have shifted the way that I view the world, and you know, it's true. It's hard to go through an experience of loss and not come out with a different perspective on life and what you want to do, you know, and sometimes it's feeling inspired by the person who passed away or the relationship that you've lost, um, to reflect on your life and, and remember what are things that are really important to me and how can I realign my life? to fill my time with more of those things that are important and less of the things that are not important or that feel really depleting. Um, And then for me, going through my dad's sustained illness, (laughs) it was nine months of very quickly I realized I can only focus on things that are important right now. And I found that there were a lot, a lot, a lot of things that fell into the category of not important.
0: Most things are probably in that category. (laughs) Yes.
1: And when you live your life like that for nine months of really only focusing on the things that are important and saying that other things are unimportant, it's actually really hard to realign once' cause a lot of things that are not important in a life or death kind of situation, they're actually m- a lot of things are marginally important
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> you know yeah. and and need to be dealt with and i and I recognize that I still have a lot of um tendencies towards procrastination of things that I even enjoy doing. I mean we're in a room right now surrounded by a lot of my procrastination because I like to (laughs) I love being creative and crafty and um I have a tendency to to come up with ideas or see something and go oh I could I could make this into that I bought an old bike wheel and turned it into a dream catcher but that bike wheel sat for two years before I (laughs) wove it with yarn and, uh, attached the feathers that I had collected to the bottom of it. So
0: well, the timing was right. The
1: timing was right. Yeah. So I, I'm really curious right now about this shift in my life and how to, uh, incorporate some of these things back into my life and, uh, procrastinate less and do more, but also say no more often. So I'm not overbooked.
0: Well, and that's kind of the the basis of our philosophical discussion last week is that, you know, last year when I was uh, recovering from a painful divorce and that, that it really put everything into perspective. And I think our question to each other was, once that's processed and gone through, and you know, I'll never be done dealing with that, I'm dealing with my mom still, you're dealing with your dad, and mm-hmm. but when it's returned to a sense of normalcy, I think the question we are asking ourselves is so, like, the ceiling has been set so high for what's important, how do we? just go back to normal going to work and I asked you the question too is like are you happy and you said yes I'm happy I'm content I've got a great job tons of friends things are going very very well but there's days where I'll finish my morning meditation and look out the window and it's not a sense of it's not despair it's not sadness it's not um There's things that I want to accomplish, but I don't have to do these things. Mm -hmm. I have this diet of self-improvement and challenge, but I don't have to do any of them. They could all stop tomorrow morning and the world would not care. Mm -hmm. And I think what you and I were trying to explore and tease out and understand is that when that defining moment is so present and so overwhelming and it transitions into the past, it does affect the rest of your life moving forward. And then, well, what the fuck do we do with this stuff now? Yeah. Like, you know, I think I'm still, I try to put the kids and my friends and family as important at the top of that list, but everything else is sort of, There's a sense of procrastination on my part. There's a sense that, you know, I don't really care if I finish this yard project. Like I'll, yeah, like Mm -hmm. in a hundred years, it's not going to matter. And in a hundred seconds, it's really not going to matter either. And so just trying to navigate those challenges of, well, like you're kind of coming out of the cave and there's daylight and it's like, Hmm. I wish I had better philosophical terms for it, but
1: Yeah. No, I relate to what you're saying, and I think um I'm not sure what to add. I have been taking a course in mindful living. Um it's my second time through this course. It's a six month course in mindfulness. And we're in a section of the course right now that's all about self-compassion. And one of the themes is noticing what feels nourishing in your life. Right. And what feels depleting in your life. And how can you, um, how can you continue and maybe even add on, uh, add in things that are nourishing And how can you sort of begin to remove some things that are depleting? And, of course, within that, there's a whole spectrum of things because I doubt very much, very many people would say that paying your bills is nourishing activity. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of times it feels good once it's done. Like, okay, I don't have to worry about that for another Mm. month. But, um. So there's things that maybe feel depleting that have to be handled. Um, But yeah, like the yard project. If it feels like it's going to be a nourishing activity, it's a beautiful day outside and you want to spend some time outside, then it's definitely a worthwhile endeavor. And if it's going to help you to enjoy your space more when it's completed or welcome friends and family over to your home to enjoy it, then that's going to continue to nourish who you are and how you enjoy your space. So it might not matter a hundred years from now that you did that aside from the fact that someone else might be living in your home and they maybe have maintained what you've done. Sure. Um, But it might matter to you now and it might not.
0: You always give me really good insight, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. And we talked about this last week when I was at, or when a, a cross race a couple of weeks ago that, okay, I've, um, been indulging in the beer and the, the stuff a little bit too much and you know, I've put on some pounds and okay, do I want to get rid of that? Yes, absolutely. That's just decisions I've made. But going out to the race to hang out with uh, Casey and Jordan and being out in the sun and spending time with just dear friends that are incredible, going to the gym would have been a better choice. And not having beers would have been in a black and white universe. I'm right? shaking my head. You guys can't yes. see me, but
1: I'm di- silently disagreeing with it. Violently
0: disagreeing <laughs> with me. In context towards like overall health goals, right? Yeah. But, and, and I do love working out. I think you or my dad, or me and your dad would have been like gym buddies. Like, I think we would have enjoyed Like, I don't force myself to go work out. Like, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But there's something nourishing and enriching about hanging out with those bozos or simply sitting here talking to you. Like are there things that are galactically more important than this? Yes. But this is something that I'll remember. And this is way more important to me because we've been talking about this concept for a couple of weeks. Like it hasn't left my consciousness since we've started exploring this. And to me, that's, yeah, reading the stoic stuff, listening to some philos, philop- philop- <laughs> 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 philosophy books. Yeah. It's kinda like I can't unring that bell. I can't not think about this stuff. And to me that's more enriching as a whole than just okay, go to the gym, do this, do that. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: it just you, you awoke you awoke a very, very um deep conceptual thought that I've just been working on for uh, for two weeks.
1: And I might have said this at the time. I'm not remembering exactly, but um, something that's been really alive in my memory this week is that I I left my job a year ago yesterday it was when I turned in my notice. I was it really? still had a couple of weeks left to work there. But, yeah, the job I was working when we met, I – um. I handed in my resignation a year ago and I had felt so stuck at that in that position and in that workplace and I just knew intuitively that I was intended to be growing in this time of my life and that I was very stagnant and there was no opportunity for me to grow there and it wasn't just... It wasn't a desire to grow financially, although I felt like I needed that because the work that I was doing felt so depleting. Um, But it was beyond that. It was this deep desire to feel valued and heard. And I finally realized that in order to get what I needed to, um, well, in order to feel valued and heard, I needed to leave and be doing something completely differently and you know I'd say this was a continuation of a theme from losing my my dad was he worked his ass off his whole career he worked so hard and he was good at what he did he worked for a wine distributor and he was well respected um (laughs) He had no problem saying no. Some of his colleagues called him Dr. No. <laughs> 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 he was kind about it, That's I think. It's the
0: path to freedom, is saying no. Though.
1: Totally. Um, but, you know, I watched him. He, he was meticulous, and he had saved all of this money and had invested in his retirement, and I, that was a big part of my grief for him losing his life was that he also didn't get an opportunity to enjoy his retirement. And I felt... You know, my, my siblings might say I've gone to the other extreme in ensuring that I have multiple retirements throughout my life because I'll save some money and then I'll take some time off. I traveled around the world for five months after he passed away. I had some incredibly enriching experiences in that time. Um, but definitely my action from last year was with the intention that I don't I don't have as much interest in the currency of money as I do in the currency of time. Yes. And so if I'm spending 40 to 45 to 50 hours a week doing something that is not fulfilling and that feels very frustrating, what am I doing? How can I shift that? And luckily I was in a position where I had saved a lot of money and I could leave the job without knowing what was next and go into teaching more yoga, which I find really fulfilling and
0: which you're absolutely amazing. At. Oh, thank <clears throat> you.
1: I, I love getting to connect with my students and connect with the practice and helping them connect with their own practice. And something I feel very passionate about is that yoga is for everyone. And, um, I fell in love with yoga in a gym setting, and so I enjoy teaching yoga in uh, gym settings or in settings that aren't the traditional yoga studio because I think that it allows people who don't identify themselves as yogis to come and experience the practice without any sort of self-judgment or concern that they're going to be judged from other practitioners because whether they're not flexible or they don't have good balance or whatever, they're coming to practice. Um, so I, I love getting to help people identify what practices work for them and how they can improve their own health or whatever they want to, to gain out of the practice, knowing that there's other benefits that people receive without, often without any awareness that they're receiving them. My own story. I started going to power vinyasa classes because I was training for a triathlon and I thought, I need to stretch. I don't stretch on my own. I'll go to these free power vinyasa classes at my gym. And that just sounds hilarious to me now that I've (laughs) taken all of these (laughs) yoga trainings because power vinyasa is not necessarily where you go to stretch. (laughs)
0: That's true. It is
1: a strengthening practice. And it took me probably six months of practicing twice a month or twice a week to arrive and go, wait a second, I'm stronger. And it's helping me on the bike and in the pool and on my runs. And my lung capacity has changed. And actually, this grief that I've been like, it's shifted. What's going on here? And so I started talking to uh, my favorite teacher at the time.
0: So how did it shift? What, what did you notice about the shift?
1: I think it's so subtle that I'm not sure how to articulate it. But I would show up and I was giving myself an hour twice a week to be on a yoga mat and to <coughs> breathe deeply and to to become aware of my thoughts you know um and be aware of my body i think people can walk around completely detached i think i walked around completely detached and so it was getting me into my own space occupying my own body and just the, yeah You take a few deep breaths and it can shift a lot of things. So true. You take deep breaths for an hour, twice a week, for months, and things are going to shift.
0: Well, the word you used, excuse me, was awareness. Mm -hmm. And I used to teach for a living professional development. So communication, like soft skills stuff. Mm -hmm. and At one point in this course, there was how to change a behavior and it's getting back to habits and things like that. And it was a stair step that we presented in this course. But the first step on this stair going up was awareness. The next step was desire. And so I'm thankful that over the course of my adult life, I've been either forced to have awareness or have come upon it naturally, but nothing has changed my life without that. And so being, <clears throat> trying to be a, an understanding and empathetic person that I see someone struggling, I will see if they have awareness of their circumstance, their environment, their role in maybe their drama or something like that. And I don't judge people if they don't have it because I had to, uh, several times in my life, I've been taken down to the, the bare metal and the bits and pieces and put back together and it's not easy. It's not fun. It's painful. It's hard to set aside the ego and, and look at that. And, but I'm thankful that I have the awareness piece of it because nothing happens without that.
1: So true. So true.
0: So what the hell do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> so I was hoping you'd have an answer, Brienne.
1: Well, my answer—well, my answer for the last <clears throat> eleven and a half months has been to take that awareness and nurture the relationships that I care deeply for, and make sure that I spend time with the people that I love and with the thing with the activities that I love to do. I love to travel. I um. So I mentioned earlier, I traveled for five months around the world uh, after my dad passed away. And that when I was saving for that trip, I was expecting my dad to live forever. And (laughs) I was planning to take a full year and go and do some volunteer work in different places and see parts of the world I'd never been to with the hope that that would shape where my career would go. Hmm. Because I've... Uh, fallen into the f- career field of accounting several times now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it works well for my problem-solving brain. I studied mechanical engineering, and I've got the math and science, but it doesn't fulfill my uh, need for creativity and connection. So I thought I'd, I'll, if I travel... And volunteer and get experience doing several different things. Inevitably, that'll come out with a with the, the straight arrow towards my you know ideal career path. It ended up being about grief um, instead, and I even wrote a blog that I think it's something along the lines of uh, uh, writing "Peace on My Wings." Mm. And I started out in Japan. And my mom had worked as a nurse her whole career, and she is the queen of conversation. That woman can connect with anybody. (laughs) And she has a memory for the details of the conversation. And, you know, so here she's taking care of this woman. So one day she came home from work with a handwritten note on a napkin telling me about this Zen Buddhist temple. That I should visit in Japan, wow. because the woman's husband had lived in Japan, I think, probably before they even met <laughs> And he had taught English, and he, he knew Jiho, the, the Buddhist priest, and he said, "Oh, if she's going to Japan, she has to stay with Jiho." And so I went, and that was one of my first stops, was five days of uh, meditation at, at Jiho's temple. Um, the, this little town, Oita, Japan, and I show up and he has one other guest. And this woman is a professor at the university of Denver. No kidding. What are the odds? <laughs> the world is so small. Yeah. And I felt like, yes, I'm supposed to be here. So I had a great time connecting with this professor. Jiho is amazing. His, uh, at the G-ho time. And Brio. Yeah. <laughs> I never put that together. <laughs> it's so good we're having this conversation. <laughs> um, and uh, his mother was still living at the time. She was 94 years old, and so it was the four of us spending time together. Um, and we'd a- eat noodles. He took us into town one night for giant beers um, and Japanese-style karaoke where you have okay. your own little private room. And we sang karaoke and drank beers, and he's he's a funny guy. He's <laughs> awesome, if you ever go to Japan. So when I found myself in transition again last year, as I became just more and more resolved to quit this job, I had already planned a trip to Kauai with some girlfriends that I swim with, and it just in the back of my head this voice kept coming and going, You're already going to be halfway across the Pacific Ocean. That's right. You really wanted to try out snowboarding in Japan, and you went in October when there's no snow. So you're going to have to go back. (laughs) February is probably ideal. So I called uh, United Airlines, and I said, what does it take to change this flight? I said, oh, just some 40,000 frequent flyer miles and... There was a change fee that I think was maybe $50. I said, great, let's do it. So I went and snowboarded in Hokkaido, which was amazing. Soaked in the onsen, the hot springs every day, snowboarded. One of the days I got an all-day pass, which means you can ski at night too. Oh, wow. And I skied for like four hours, snowboarded really. I used the word, the word ski interchangeably, just <laughs> to be clear. Um, and at the base of the mountain, there was this really fancy hotel with a beautiful yoga studio. There are these columns of, uh, I don't even, it's column is not the right word, like an atrium kind of in the middle. So the snow is just falling down and you can see it in the, in the space of the yoga room. Um, practiced yoga and then got straight back on my snowboard and, Uh, I got to snowboard at night for the first time, which was so cool. The visibility was actually better at night than during the day. Yeah. And then I returned to Oita and spent five more days meditating with Jiho. It was really cool.
0: Wow. That's great.
1: I'm still not clear on my career path, but I feel like... I'm I'm true to what I need to be doing right now and how I want to be spending my time. There'll come a time where I need to be earning a lot more money than I am <laughs> and that'll be a time to check in and figure out what's next.
0: Well, you don't have to make that decision at the moment. I
1: don't. Thank goodness. <laughs>
0: So Nick, Nick had a question for you as we were talking about this. Um, Hi, Nick. (laughs) I don't think he listens.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're just going to tell him later. (laughs) He might. I don't know. I hope he does, but,
0: um, he was curious how your dad's passing affected your spirituality.
1: Oh, wow. That's an interesting question to consider. Um, my parents raised us very intentionally without religion. We're, I guess, classified as Christian. We celebrate Christian holidays. Okay. But they're marked more as a time to spend together over a really good meal, and we'll exchange gifts at Christmas. Um, and so... I feel very spiritually connected to the three most important people in my life who've passed away, Lindsay, my maternal grandmother, and my dad. And I feel like Lindsay's passing connected me to my spiritual beliefs in a really profound way, and my dad kind of helped me shape that, more so by creating that space for me to be and to explore and for us to go on these walks where he didn't say a whole lot, but he would relate to whatever I was saying and we could have a deeper conversation to what I was experiencing or feeling. And so I would say that that, that all of those things kind of created this foundation, but there especially i think in, in the first year after he passed away um <laughs> there there were signs that i came across often that just felt like like we were talking at the beginning of this conversation that you can't ignore that this is a this is the universe communicating with me and One of the most profound signs happened on the actual anniversary, the first anniversary of his passing. I was with some of my best, best, best girlfriends outside of Crested Butte. We camped out and we went mountain biking on the 401 trail. Gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. You know, it's the end of June. It's the peak of wildflower season and I challenge you to find better wildflowers anywhere in this state aside from Crested Butte. They are bar none. just phenomenal. So we had a couple of days of just really epic mountain biking, camping. And, uh, on the anniversary of his death, there was this yoga class kind of around the same time that he passed away. And I said, let's go take this yoga class and then we'll go get breakfast. And, um, Man, Katie will have to correct me if I'm wrong (laughs) after this is recorded. I can't remember if we were coming out of the yoga studio or if it was out of the coffee shop or the breakfast place where we were, but it was literally around the minute that he passed away. And I see this woman wearing a shirt that says, I heart D H. (laughs) And the heart had angel wings on it. And like a halo. And my dad's name was Dave Hovey. And I was like, please, please tell me about your shirt. And she was like, oh, yeah. Um, Because that same week in Crested Butte, they have this whole series of uh, mountain bike races. And she says, I'm a downhill mountain biker. And I'm from Angel Fire, New Mexico. So it's iHeart Downhilling, and I was like, That is rad. Can I take your photo? <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's start out with a conversation with rather than being like shyly sneaking a photo of her. And she's like, Yeah, for sure. And so she stands tall. I get this photo, and I just was like, unreal.
0: Those are just <clears throat> amazing events. And
1: I probably should have told her, like, actually, let me tell you what your T-shirt means to me. <laughs> <laughs> it means like, you know, he's he's still here. Yeah. You know.
0: Well, and as long as you're still here, he's still here.
1: Yeah. And whether it's that, you know, he just exists within me because I'm his offspring and we were had a very close connection or. If spiritually his spirit comes and visits me, or that the universe you know there there's theories and you talk about in uh physics a lot too about energy, yeah um that nothing is really ever destroyed, you know shifts right, so yeah. I don't know, that's my very non-direct answer for Nick, I guess, is that, that there's, there's things that happen that can't be explained right? and that create this, this sense of connection.
0: Well, and I loved how your dad, <clears throat> when your friend died, he may not have known what to do, but he was present.
1: Yeah, that was it. He gave the gift of presence.
0: Right. And at the lowest points in my life when people were just there, that's all I really needed. I wasn't looking to them for help or direction or an answer, but just that there was some companionship or some friendship.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And so when people reach out and struggle and they, I take it as a a huge compliment and the ultimate sign of trust that they would reach out.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And if I'm able to, I stop what I'm doing and just go there Mm -hmm. and just can watch TV or go for a walk or whatever. And I, I think, I think people tend to overthink a lot of things, but especially in a situation where it's so raw and emotional that they get wrapped around the axle about what to do or what not to do. And you don't have to do anything. You just have to show up.
1: Yeah. There's something about just being. And, and that's the true gift is it, it can feel uncomfortable and raw and it takes vulnerability to be in that space with somebody. And you know, if, if you know somebody who needs that, you can just, Know that there's not something that you can do to fix the situation, but that you can provide a lot of comfort by just, you know, saying I'm sorry that you're going through a hard time. Right. Let me know what I can do for you or let me come pick you up and let's go for let's go out and be outside yeah. in nature.
0: Well, this has been <clears throat> I knew this is going to be great, but this has been, um, even, even better than I expected. So thank you so much. And I know we've got to drink a beer out of a giant glass face and you've got to get to yoga, but I will, I'm going to do a commercial for you for your yoga practice. You, your practice cured, uh, plantar fasciitis in both feet. And I've been to a lot of yoga classes and, your practice, and I try to, I try to separate, um, my, uh, feelings and my admiration for you as a person and a friend with your professional yoga practice. And even doing that as best as I can and trying to be objective, it's still one of the best classes I've ever been anywhere. And so it's just, you, you have the, the guidance of a a gentle breeze but the expertise of a, of a master. And it's just a wonderful class. And so I do miss having it across the street from me as, as available, but, um, it's a phenomenal practice. And should someone want to attend that, where could they take a class with you?
1: Thank you very much.
0: It's the absolute truth.
1: (laughs) I appreciate the feedback. Um, well, right now I'm teaching my regular classes are Friday afternoons, 4.30, yin, yoga, long hold, lots of silence.
0: Those are great classes, by the a way.
1: A lot of props um, and hands-on assist. I give a lot of massage in that class. That's 4.30 Fridays at Greenwood Athletic Club. Uh, 4 p.m. Sundays, Greenwood Athletic Club, Candlelight Vinyasa. It's accessible to beginners, but it is a challenging class. Um, And then Wednesdays, I teach at Anytime Fitness down in Castle Rock, 7 p.m. Wednesdays. And I fill in for classes at White Lotus Therapeutics at 26th and Irving, in the Highlands neighborhood of uh, Denver. Right now, I'm teaching a 715 yen class on Thursdays, and the regular teacher will be returning from Cambodia sometime in January. So, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> you can check the schedule online, White Lotus Therapeutics, and see when I'm there.
0: Awesome. <clears throat> well, Brian Hovey, like I I told you in a text a while ago, you're a wonderful friend, a source of light and inspiration. And I'm, I'm happy that we met and thank you for doing this. It means a lot.
1: Thank you, Matt. Sadnakar. <laughs> wow. Stumbling over your name. Um, I appreciate you as a friend. Thanks. Yeah.
0: Let's drink a beer.
1: Let's drink a beer. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. Perfect. <laughs>